We're studying Hebrews chapter 1. Last week we studied verse 1. Today we're going to start with verse 2. But we also did background study on Hebrews. This material in the first, well actually all of Hebrews, but particularly the first four verses is very dense. And there are a lot of important theological concepts in each phrase, much less each verse. So it may take us a while to work through this, but I think it will be worth our while. I'll start reading with verse 1 and I'll read through verse 4. Alright, here we go. Hebrews 1, starting with verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago in the fathers, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purifications of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Having become as much better than angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. As I pointed out last week, this is very beautiful language in the Greek, some of the most eloquent in the New Testament. And we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever did was well versed in Greek and very articulate. Now, we finish verse 1, so let's begin with verse 2. In these last days has spoken to us. Notice there's a contrast between the past and the present. In the past, God spoke through the Father, to the fathers and the prophets. So this speaks of the inspiration of the Old Testament, and that it was God speaking uh, through the people that were his spokespersons in the Old Testament. But there's a sense of finality in verse 2, because there's a change in tenses. So um, we have the, in the first verse, he spoke, God having spoken. And then uh, which in the second verse, has spoken is in the aorist, which is in a decisive one-time event. So in a sense it gives, by the contrast of tenses, as I said last week, you have a sense of finality that this is the final word until the return of Christ. So this verse is one of the most important ones for establishing that the, the message of Christ and his apostles is not going to be added to in subsequent history. You know, the Mormons deny that. They would say that God spoke. They don't deny that God spoke through the Bible. But the, the Book of Mormon, they call it another testament of Jesus Christ. And uh, so therefore they would deny that there was a finality to the New Testament message. But that's certainly being claimed here in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, that in these last days there was a final word that came, and it was the word that came through the Son and His Son. God's final and decisive word, someone says. What are the last days? Yes, Cara. Question for you. Sometimes I've taken this verse out people who say that there's continued revelation, and they say, well, what about revelations in the other books after Hebrews? Couldn't those be excluded then? 
Okay, the key is the link to the sun and who, who actually writes or speaks for the sun. Okay, because Jesus himself didn't write any of the Bible. Okay? So when he says in these last days he has spoken through his son, then what we need to determine is who did the son appoint to be the ones to write this final word, right? Because Jesus didn't write anything himself. So then, so there, then you have to go back to the apostolic authority and who were these ones appointed to write down what Jesus said and did. John claimed that authority. He claimed that he was an eyewitness, that he was an apostle. And he wrote in 95 AD, much later than the book of Hebrews. But John was the one who had been appointed by Jesus Christ and who wrote authoritatively. We believe that Paul was one, and Paul makes his claim in 1 Corinthians 15 of having seen the Lord and been appointed as an apostle as a, to speak for him. Yes? I've got written down in my Bible here, it said, it said before 70 AD. Yeah, before 70 AD would be the time of writing of Hebrews. The reason being that it talks so much about the priesthood and the and warning the Jews not to go back to the Old Testament system of sacrifices. And it would be assumed that if the temple had already been destroyed, this would bolster the argument of the writer of Hebrews to say so. And since it seems to be ongoing at the time, it would be before 70 AD when this was written. But Karan's question was, well then who, who is this that wrote down what the son spoke? And we claim it would be the authoritative apostles. Can I, without getting yeah. uh, a lot of the part of hopefully she and I are going to use for our friends, um, but we'll try to open it a little bit. There are a couple of books that were not strictly written by what we would call strictly apostles. Would it be fair to say, for instance, uh, Mark and Luke, yeah. would it be fair to say that they must have been accepted by the contemporaries of these apostles right. or, or we have, we have to answer those. Yeah, like Hebrews. Well, good, very good point. Mark um, got his information from Peter, according to very early tradition. But, but I mean, they had to be accepted. Yeah, exactly. They were written when they when it came down later in church history, starting in the, about 150 A.D. There became questions of canonicity. Canon would be the accepted books. And interestingly, what prompted the questions about canon were heretics. Early in the, in the second century, there, nobody was questioning it, partly because there were still people alive that knew the apostles. And so, if you were in 115 or 120 or 130 AD, and there's a question about what Jesus said or did or what, what was acceptably the Gospels, you went to you went to somebody like Polycarp that knew the Apostle John, or you went to people that were alive when Paul wrote because they were still on the scene of history and they could settle the issue. And so we have evidence that that's exactly what happened. And some of these, like Luke and Mark and the early Gospels, were quoted as scripture already in 95 A.D. by Clement of Rome and others that that knew the Apostles. So therefore. It wasn't being questioned. And what happened was that in of the mid-2nd century, a heretic by the name of Marcion arose, 
and started and had his own ideas, and he started denying the canonicity of certain scriptures. He wouldn't accept anything, but some he threw out most of the Old Testament and accepted some of the writings of Paul and threw out some of the other stuff. And the reason being, the Marcion had his own doctrinal agenda, and he wanted to make Christianity compatible with mystical Greek thinking. And wanted to assert that the Old Testament God was an inferior deity to Jesus, who was the God of love. Well, so what happens then in 150-something A.D., you have Marcion coming out with a false canon, saying only these books are from God, these ones are not. Well, what, so that creates a need for the church to respond. Because nobody was questioning it before that. And so then you begin to come up with your list of canon lists. One of the first ones was the Muratorian canon list. And as this the debate went on, dealing with heretics, by the 3rd century the church had basically settled on what books were written by the apostles, which ones were authoritative. If not written by the apostles, ordained by the apostles. Like Luke. Luke was really not questioned, even though not written by an apostle. Mark was in question because they believed that Peter gave Mark the information for him to write down. Well, was it because actually the first Yeah, Mark was the first one written down, as far as we can tell. And so, yeah. And Luke claimed, and what Luke's claim was that he carefully researched these things and, and, and talked to the eyewitnesses. Yes, yeah. We've got to go back to the first question, though. I'm still kind of stuck on that. It's a good question. In his son, did Christ ever say, I'm going to appoint these people and you can trust them? Otherwise, it's like that's a secondary thing that the church accepted it, but we really don't have one thing where Christ said that. Well, often we point to uh, John 14, where he says the Holy Spirit will bring all these things to your remembrance. Um, yes? I hope I'm not going aside from that, but what about Paul then? Because Paul wasn't there. I mean, a lot of his writings, which are books, things that he got by way of just revelation, seeking God off on his own. Well, he claims that he met the resurrected Lord as one born out of time, 1 Corinthians 15, and that he had had this experience where he literally met Christ. And and so he, that was his claim, and um, that there was more to it than just um, some sort of a revelation. Although God can inspire pro- prophets to write for him, like He did in the Old Testament. But it has more written in the in the New Testament it, it, uh, as testimony to Him by the, the apostles and so on, or by His feeling yeah. the apostles than than others, right? So I mean, He's as a matter of fact, what's interesting about this, we watched a debate with this atheist, Anthony Flew, who's one of the leading atheist spokespersons, and when critics who look back at the literature in a very negative try, uh, way, trying to disprove it, they all accept Paul's writings as, as being genuine. They may not believe in inspiration, but they started in 1 Corinthians 15 in this debate because they'd accept that Paul actually wrote that Paul existed Amen. and that he existed at that time in history 
And even the harshest critics, the atheists, believe that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because the evidence points to it. And then in 1 Corinthians, you have Paul claiming to have seen the resurrected Christ. Now, Anthony Flew said, now, was this a vision or was this the real Christ? Remember that debate we saw in the video? So, there, we have to establish the link between Christ and the apostles and whether these writings were ones that Christ himself has ordained one way or the other or inspired. Yes? Also, if Paul, Paul was a fairly high Pharisee, judging by what he was doing with after, just after Pentecost, mm-hmm. If that was the case, he would be watching what was going on with Jesus and would have seen it. It would be from a negative perspective at that time. What was going on, so he still would have had the eyewitness. Yeah, he was on the scene of history, certainly. He was on the scene of history. He was alive when these things happened. He would have been watching them. He was... Probably, yeah. I don't know how close he was to it. Question is, yeah, more just along the lines of what was his... Contact with, with Jesus' actual words and Jesus' teaching. If that happened after he met him on that night, then and after, the previous, the first time he heard about it was when Stephen was stoned. And Paul was an eyewitness to that, as far as we know. The first time he's mentioned, he may have been. <laughs> That's true. So, he was on the other side of it. As John Warwick Montgomery said, there were people on the scene of history with means, motive, and opportunity to refute everything that was being said and done. And had there been a body, they could have produced it. Had the grave not been empty, they could have pointed that out. One thing everybody agreed about in the very earliest beginning of the gospel, even the people that hated Christianity, they all agreed that the grave was empty. The only debate was why. Was there a resurrection, or was there a stolen body, or what? But they all agreed that the grave was empty. So we're going to work, now we're trying to establish the authority of Scripture. And the way we do that is that proving, first of all, the resurrection by the historical witnesses. And then that, that Jesus spoke to people that were eyewitnesses. And, and, then, and then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to many eyewitnesses. And then to him as one born out of time. And that these eyewitnesses were still alive to be questioned, to ask whether there was such a thing as a resurrection, if Jesus really did teach and really did have disciples. Then you have the first gospel, Mark, that was probably written, according uh, with interviews from Peter, according to at least the tradition of the thing. You have Matthew, who was an eyewitness. You have John, who was an eyewitness. And you have Luke, who went out and interviewed eyewitnesses. As he said, he inquired into these things, and uh, as he said in his prologue well, uh, to, to the Theophilus, which could mean a real person or for anybody who's a friend of God. Well, then you have Paul and his interaction with the re- resurrected Lord and being commissioned as an apostle. So they wrote these things um, down. Now the question becomes, which ones are authoritative? And that's what we're trying to establish. And I have a lot of documentation on this if anybody wants to read it and study how, how this all happens. But um, my bottom line of this, having studied it for many years, the New Testament is, is inspired by God. And that these are the people that God ordained would write down the words of Jesus. 
and that in speaking to us in these last days through his son, he's doing, through, to, to, doing so through the scriptures. To anybody who wasn't alive at that time in history, it has to be through the writings. So he has spoken to us. Certainly there's other ways that religious material is transmitted, like word of mouth and oral tradition, but ultimately it has to be written, which is the process that led us to the canon of Scripture. So, are we satisfied that God has spoken? Amen. All right. Um, and I, if you want to study more about this, I have more material out there. The issue of the canon is very interesting, and I think it's worthy of studying. Interestingly, Hebrews is one of the last books to be accepted as canonical. And the reason, not, that wasn't, the, the one that was, I think Second Peter is the most questioned of all of them. Of all of the books in the New Testament, there may be a question about canonicity. Second Peter, more so than any other book. Hebrews was also later in church when they accepted it. I have a magazine at home, Biblical Archaeology. Yeah. And in the magazine, they sell a big, giant wall chart. I don't have it, but it seems like the past few Bible studies I've been at, we often go back to, to exactly what you're speaking of. Would it be helpful for the study to have a... What's the wall chart have on it? The, there's different wall charts, but the one wall chart is the history of the church... And as it progresses, it, it has uh, little synopsises underneath that... Deal with some of these things. Right. Wow. And that that uh, might be I'll, interesting. I'll it for the group. It might be Does it have things about, can, about the canon, about when they settled on, on the yeah, books? Yeah, it goes through the whole... Uh, okay, that'd be interesting. I think people would like that. So, one of the criteria that when the early church had to settle on a canon because the heretics was apostolic authorship and also whether these things had been accepted all the way along since the time of John. And you can read the writings of the very early church fathers and if they quote, for instance, Clement of Rome quotes 1 Corinthians as scripture in 95 AD. So already in the first years of century you have Paul quoted as writing scripture, and yet Second Peter does this. Second Peter calls Paul's writing scripture, which is part of the reason it's questioned, because the scholars look at that and say, well, this is probably later than why would Peter already be calling Paul's writing scripture? I mean, if you want to question it. Okay, but nevertheless, Second Peter does call Paul's writing scripture. So, it's an interesting process. But what's beautiful about Hebrews 1-2 is that this profound statement that in the last days, God has spoken finally and decisively to us in his Son. So the person whose message is authoritative is ultimately the Son, Jesus Christ, written by his apostles, his authoritative spokespersons. The last days, um, let's look up some passages. Don, could you look up Genesis 30 and verse 24? When is the last days? Confusing term, isn't it? Because sometimes we look at Yeah, let's talk about it. Well, I think it, prior to Paul's revelation, Jesus and they, they were only going directly to uh, the Jews. 
were preaching the kingdom message, uh-huh. right? So they were expecting the end times at any time. Right. Back then they were saying it's at hand. Right. Whereas the end times from when Paul had his revelation, weren't they also thinking that it could come at any time? But here we are. We're still there. A thousand years later. Right. And, and we're believing that, that that time is at hand. But I think we're, we're seeing... Uh, more and more of the you know culmination of what uh, they they were what was prophesied were seen coming coming to pass. Yeah, it, that's the interesting thing is that how there's a lot of theological journal articles written saying did the Jesus and the apostles were they wrong in thinking that this was it? But I think we have some ways of helping. Dick, did you have something you want to say about that? Well, just the simple thing from Christ until His second coming. Yeah. Yeah, the last days begin at Pentecost. Remember Peter announced? What did Peter say about the last days in Pentecost? This is already not yet thing that I am to talk about. Turn with me to Acts 2. Let's, let's see the announcement of the last days here in Acts chapter 2. It says in chapter, or verse 15, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only a third hour of the day. But if this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour forth my spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and science in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come about that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, notice in the citation of Joel, Joel himself has uh, a sort of a, what do we call it? When you're looking at something far into the future, you sort of have a collapsed. Uh, where's parallax? If you notice, if you um, if you look down a country road and you look at a long ways, and there's a series of telephone poles, it almost looks like they're right on top of each other. But if you get closer, you see that they're really quite a ways apart. All right. And so as these prophets look far into the future, they see a kind of a compressed view of it, but it's all still there. So here in Joel, Joel's primarily prophesying about the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the day of God's wrath, when then he comes and judges all the sinners, removes the wicked, and saves Israel. But that doesn't happen. That hasn't happened yet, has it? But yet Peter says, this what was happening there at Pentecost, this is what Joel spoke of, I will pour out my spirit. Now that already happened back in the first century. So what we have here is this compressed view of time where included in the last days is the very beginning of the end of time when God pours out his spirit in his prophesied and looking forward to, yeah, that great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the day of God's wrath that Joel prophesied, and that's included here, but it hasn't happened yet. So, it's very biblical to define the last days as beginning in the day of Pentecost and ending at the return of Christ in judgment. And everything in between is part of it. 
So we are living in the last days right now, but we haven't seen the end of it. And so when, uh, basically, you could define it this way, the last days are the days of Messiah. The days of Messiah, of his first advent, in the sense that he came and established um, the church, and, and his second advent, and, and so those are the two bookends. The 70 weeks of Daniel, the 69th week, was that? That was the resurrection? Um, the 69th week ended at um, Palm Sunday. Okay, and so now the 70th week... It hasn't begun yet. Right. We're waiting for it. Right, right, right. And so in between is this whole last days. Right. And... Um, so that, if you take, keep that concept in mind, you already, not yet, already Messiah has come, already we have people entering into the Messianic Kingdom by faith, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but not yet, we have, we don't have the great and terrible day of the Lord, the, the moon and the sun and the stars haven't changed as, as it portends the day of God's wrath and so on. Yes? Even in Revelation, the saints, the martyr saints, kept to keep saying, "When, Lord, when, when will our blood be avenged?" But they they weren't given an exact time. Well, yeah, it wasn't even yet then. It doesn't even come to the end, the very end. So, in these last days, meaning the days of Messiah, his first advent, culminating with his second advent. So it would be when Messiah showed up on the face of the earth, he spoke. And so this final and decisive word was in these last days. Okay, Jer- Jeremiah 30 and verse 24. Jeremiah, these are Genesis. Sorry, Jeremiah 30, 24. You gotta, you gotta go by what I mean, not what I say. <laughs> Jeremiah 30, 24. <laughs> The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He fully accomplishes the purposes of His heart. In the days to come, you will understand this. Yeah, it says, that must be the NIV, in the New American Genesis, it says, in the last days you'll understand this. So in the last days, people would understand what they could only look forward to in part in the Old Testament. And as we read in verse 1-1, um, where it says he's spoken parts and portions of the fathers in the last days there's a fuller speaking. Okay, so in these last days he spoke in his son. Here's another verse, Lonnie, uh, Deuteronomy 18:15. In fact, read 15 and 18. This one I think I actually said it right. Deuteronomy 18:15 and 18. I'm sure of this one. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear according to all you desire of the Lord, your God, in word of in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. 18 also yeah, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded or that I commanded him. Yes. 
That is Moses' prophecy about Messiah. And the Jews accepted that as Messianic. Jesus talked about that several times in the Gospels. That Moses said he was going to send someone to speak. That God would send somebody to speak and that they should listen to him. Jesus claimed to be that person. One of the most such places in John chapter 5. Jesus claimed to be the one that Moses spoke of. That would speak for God. And they're supposed to listen to him. Yes? I was just thinking about that verse the other day. He rose up many prophets between Moses and Jesus. Why is this one special? Because this, all of the others are leading up to this one. Well, remember the Brian teaching about the one and the many? Vaguely, you want, might want to get that DVD where he talks about that on the, about the end times. But the one and the many is a very important concept, and um, the many in, in this case are looking forward to the one and speaking, you know, inquiring about him and prophesying of him. It said that in one Peter one ten through twelve that they were the spirit of Christ was in them speaking, but that the one would come and finally speak authoritatively, listen to him. Now, even the Jews believed that. The Jews knew they had, had had prophets. The Jews believed that Jeremiah spoke for God and Isaiah spoke for God, okay, during the intertestamental time. But they didn't believe that that one had come yet, that Moses prophesied of. And Jesus came and claimed that he was that one. Yes, uh, Brian? Well, it also says in... in Deuteronomy 18.15 says, we'll raise up for you a prophet from the midst of brethren like me. Right. So, You're like a new Moses. Right. And that's one of the things that Hebrews is going to talk about, that Jesus is greater than Moses. Okay. And, yes? I was going to Yeah, he started with Mo from Moses and all the prophets that showed that where they spoke of him. It's in, yeah, it's in Luke 24. He's the only one that claimed to be the one. That's one thing. Uh, Isaiah never claimed to be the one that Moses prophesied of. Ezekiel never claimed to be the one. Isaiah prophesied about Messiah. Ezekiel prophesied about Messiah. But Jesus did claim to be the one. Amen. So the one in the Hebrew is a special term to refer to Isaiah, a specific one, not just many others. Okay, let me explain the one and the many. Notice, let me, let's try it on the negative side first try to understand it. Remember when John said, many antichrists have gone into the world, but we have heard the antichrist will come? Well, the many would be all the people operating the antichrist spirit. Alright? All those who would be substitute anointed ones. I think you've heard me teach before that antichrist, anti, in the Greek, could mean Against, or to also mean in, in, in place of. 
And from other passages, we know that Antichrist means in place of, because uh, Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. So they are, uh, if they come in Jesus' name, they're not claiming to be against him. Right? So they're claiming, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, Jesus wanted you to listen to me, and I'm the one. And they're Antichrist because they're substitute anointed ones. Christ, Christos, means anointed one. So the many would be all of the people in history that would come along claiming to be God's anointed Christ, but really are. Antichrist, the Antichrist, the lawless one, as he's called in Second Thessalonians, is the one who ultimately embodies the many that went before him. Okay? Does that make sense? Alright, well, so then when it comes to these prophets, the prophets are all speaking for God about Christ. And when the one comes, the many are embodied ultimately in this one person, the true Christ. Um, let's reread this one. We looked at it last week, but it came up again. Daniel, since you asked, uh, I like your inquiring mind. <laughs> Daniel does have an inquiring mind. He's always asking good questions. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. All right? Because we have some people here that were here last week when we read that. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Will help us understand the one and the many and how the many are longing to see the day of Christ and they inquire into it and they prophesy of it. But they didn't see it, but we do. So in some ways we're privileged above the prophets of the Old Testament. What a shame to have that privilege and not, not even bother studying the Bible like some people do. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. As for this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, and seeking to know what first or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. Yeah. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through who, to those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels want to look. Yeah, there we go. So there's our privilege. So they were prophesying about it, but the ultimate message was Christ. And when he came and spoke, he spoke finally and authoritatively. And those that preached the gospel to us were the apostles. And we are privileged to have the veil taken back partially. And we're getting to see things that angels long to look into. Isn't that a privilege? Yeah, what a shame to go through life not studying the Bible. Even go to church all your life and never study the Bible in some cases. Um, neglecting our sacred privilege, if that's the case. And these last days have spoken to us in his Son, um, whom he appointed heir of all things. How is Messiah the heir of all things? What's an heir? H-E-I-R. Yeah, you had somebody who's in line to inherit. And so... This is probably an allusion to Psalm 2 in verse 8. And um, Leif, could you look up Psalm 2 in verse 8? Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Yeah. And this is right after verse 7 where he says to his son, right? Thou art my son today, I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. 
I've seen people claim that first for themselves. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I was at a meeting one time, and they were saying, yeah, we asked God to give you the nations, and we're, Lord, we want the nations. And, well, wait a second. That was promised to Messiah. Who do we think we are? Um, God, he said he'd give the nations to Messiah. And, and to him to, will be the obedience of the nations. And so what is being said is that through Israel's Messiah would come people from all tribes and tongues on the face of the earth who would put their faith in God. And through him, ultimately, they would serve God. Now those who refuse to will be judged at the end of the age. Okay, some other passages. Stephan. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and Karen, Matthew eleven twenty-seven, 27, and Carla, Matthew 28, 18. We're talking about Jesus being heir of all things. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Matthew eleven twenty-seven, 27, and Matthew 28, 18. Okay. I kept looking in the night vision. Kept looking in the night vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, Everlasting dominion. 
The way he's exercising it now is by calling people out from the nations into the kingdom through the gospel. But there's yet a further exercise of his dominion that will happen at the end when he comes as judge, which was, we can see the judgment on nations in Matthew chapter 25 and elsewhere. And interestingly, as I said before, Peter prophesied of the pouring out of the Spirit. But then he also prophesied, quoted Joel's prophecy about the ultimate end of the age when he comes as the judge. So Jesus is appointed by the Father to be heir of all things. Then it says, through whom also he made the world. So Jesus is the creator. All right? He is the eternal God, second person of the Trinity, and also the creator. Jesus is not created. That's where we part company with a lot of cults. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus was a created being. And you got to, terminology is important. If you talk to Mormons, they're very crafty. They'll, they'll agree with you. But what they don't tell you is that in their scheme of things, man becomes God. Right? And God was once man who became God, and we can become God like God did. So when, when you say to a Mormon, well, we believe in the deity of Christ, they'll say, yes, we do too. Why? Well, because they believe that he's a man who became God, and we can do the same. Yes. What do the Mormons say about the Holy Spirit? You know, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure what their doctrine of the Holy Spirit is. I have, I don't know. Um, I'm sure they talk about it, but uh, I'm not enough expert on Mormonism to, to say. I do know that they're, they're basically, they're saying as God, as we are, God was, and as God is, we shall be. That's their little slogan. Right, yeah. um, back to yeah. the verse, okay? Yeah. Back to this one. Um, who's who, and who's he, and what does that mean? Through whom Jesus, he, God, made the world. How's that work? Well, God would be, in his ultimate essence, the Trinitarian God, decrees that the world be created. Active in that creation process is the Son. And we're going to talk about the eternal relationship of the Son and the Father, which is... Um, there's a certain amount of mystery to it. And I, I have some quotes here from Lenski on this, because there's a debate, and this is not between the, the heretics and the Orthodox Christians, because within Orthodoxy, I mean in the sense of right biblical doctrine, there are questions as, is the Son the Son from all eternity? Is that always his title? Or is Son the title he took on in the Incarnation? Okay, and both opinions have been espoused throughout church history. I think I like the one that Linsky has in here the best because he says in some regards the Son exists obviously forever with God and as God, but there's some special way he's a point. He's uh, today thou art my Son is talking about some point in history, All right? And so we're going to talk about that later. But let's just suffice, suffice it to say now that the Father is the ultimate creator, but he does throw so through the Son. Is it almost a quotation of John 1, verse 3 through 
Yes. Without him, nothing. Yeah, that's a very good. John 1 3 also asserts Jesus is the Creator. Now, why is it important to say that Jesus is the Creator? Well, to establish his eminence and his deity. Because this was a, man, I'll tell you, this was debated in, in the fourth century. The, the, the debates of, with, uh, with Athanasius, uh, Athanasius and uh, all of these, the church almost became, what was the other guy? Who was the heretic? Arian. The Arians believed that Jesus was a created being in the fourth century. And there was a huge debate. And politically, the Arians almost um, prevailed. And his church father from Alexandria withstood the Arians. And um, their slogan was, there was a time when he was not. That was the Arian heresy. We had Arians today that called Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> but anyhow, do you like studying church history? I think it's, it's fascinating. Absolutely love church history. Well, they they can say that Jesus was created first, and then then God had Him create everything else, right? They say He was the preeminent created being, but He was still created. Yes. But do they then differ with the definition of they have to the definition of deity being? Yeah, they would, wouldn't they? That's one I use when I debate with the Word of Faith people who claim that Jesus lost his, de- his deity on the cross and had to regain it. Um, I use that debate. That's a very uh, good observation, Karen. The definition of deity is that it is eternal and non-contingent. Eternal, we know. What does non-contingent mean? Yeah, not dependent on anything else. In fact, Satan's whole measure was he was trying to get level with God. Right. Yeah, Isaiah 14, Satan wanted to be equal with God. Now, the problem is you can't become a God if the definition of deity is eternal and non-contingent. In other words, God exists for all eternity and it does not depend on anything outside of himself for his existence. Absolutely dependent on nothing. He is self-existent in all of his attributes, which is uh, a doctrine of God that you have to know if you're going to study theology, and it's, it's very biblical. Then if that's the case, then that excludes anybody from ever becoming God. Because if you have to become something, you weren't it. And if you quit being it, you are it. <laughs> so, so you have to have that as a bedrock of your understanding of deity. Now, with that definition, then saying that Jesus is God, we know that He exists with God and as God from all eternity. Whenever I preach the gospel, if I preach the gospel out here on the street during one of our outreaches, I always say that He exists with God and as God from all eternity, because that way they know we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, all right? Or Mormons, for that matter, because the Mormons would, couldn't say that. Because they believed that even God himself at one time was a man who became a God. He didn't exist as God from all eternity. So I don't want anybody confuse, being, confusing us with the cults. Yes? You know the idea that everybody becomes God in the living scheme of things? It's kind of... 
Uh, I don't know if everybody does. You have to go through no, their process. Everybody, there's more than one people do eventually. Yeah, and if you're if you're really good at it, you get to have your own planet and a bunch of women to use to populate the planet. But there's different levels of gods. But even then, it's not a bound because it's not right. controlling it. And in some ways, you would see in there the scheme of things. There is no god by the biblical yeah. definition. They have no god of the way we understand god. They have none. That's true. That's that's very true. Most Mormons, by the way, don't know the doctrines of their own church, but I guess you could say that about a lot of Christians. Yes. What do they do with the verse that says the wages of sin is death? The Mormons? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how they how they do that. Their their system of salvation by works. You have to build this. They had this system of where you build, 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 and work, and you have to follow all the laws and decrees ultimately. And uh, I heard a guy at an apologetics conference that learned Mormonism so well that he, he could show Mormons that by their own dogma, they're all hopeless. That nobody could ever feel like they did it. And he uses that once they realize they can't possibly do it to, to introduce the gospel. I want to finish this verse, though. We've got five minutes. Through whom also made the world. Now, there's an interesting word here. And I'm going to quote Linsky. I'm, I'm finding Linsky very helpful. My, I've got about four commentaries on Hebrews I'm using because I haven't settled on which one's the best. Maybe I'll keep using all four. It takes me longer that way, but uh, you're never too old to learn, right? Here's Lenski. <laughs> don't, don't start it. <laughs> He's laughing at me about being old. No, actually, I got Kistemacher on this one. Um, the word world there, what's interesting is in the Greek it's Iones or ages. So it isn't saying he created the earth. It isn't even saying the gay is the word for earth. It's not saying he created the cosmos, which of course he did. But this word ages is even bigger. It, it, and it implies more than just creating a physical universe or even creating man. And so when it says he created the ages... It implies that it includes all of the things that exist and what happens during history. So he's the creator and the sustainer of all of the universe, including everything that happens therein. Um, here's a, a theologian, Kissemaker, says this. The word universe signifies primarily the cosmos, the created world in all of its fullness, and secondarily... The stars and planets God has created, but the meaning has been more comprehensive than this, because it involves all the events that have happened since the creation of the world. It concerns the earth and its history throughout the ages. The word has been interpreted as, quote, the sum of the periods of time, including all that is manifested in and through them, unquote. It refers not to the world as a whole, but to the entire created order that continues to develop throughout the course of time. So it makes him the Lord, the creator of the ages. What's that right again? Uh, Iones. Alpha, what? A-I, long O, M-A-S, if you transliterate it. What a verse for the sovereignty of God. I know. I know. He's the Lord of history. As well as everything that happens, including creation, including the universe and everything within so it's a powerful uh, 
comprehensive word. I was also going to quote Lenski, too, I see here. Eons, yeah, where we get our, uh, yeah, we, our word eons comes from this Greek word. Yes, yes, indeed. Lenski, page 36, excuse me, while I find Lenski. Yeah, I know as you read world, singular in, in your Bible. Yes. Worlds, and I was going to ask about that. Why is plural? And then you brought up ages. Ages, so that's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, it is plural. We have no multiplicity of worlds or world spaces, but the cosmos, this is quoting Lenski, but the cosmos in its entire time extent, with all that fills and forms one eon after another in brief, heaven and earth, and all that has its being in them. So it's the, it's the expanse of the universe, the, the eons, and all that transpires within are created by Christ. Now, a lot of people will obviously go to the problem of evil and say, well then, how, how, in what extent then is he responsible for evil? But that is another issue. Yes. You used this verse in your article when you are making the world in voice. Oh, well, this would be a great refute to boy. I mean, I don't know if I remember I used this verse or not, but yeah, Dr. Boyd claims that God doesn't know what's going to happen. And that history is transpiring in ways that God did not expect it to. And so it certainly diminishes the biblical doctrine of Christ as the creator of the ages. Because it would be like he starts it and then it's going in ways that he's not anticipating or in some way allowing. Well, yeah, you how much of that is in the Word, though, and how much of that is in understanding and predestination, election, all the rest of it that goes with it? Well, I think the word the word is part of it, and the rest of it is clear statements. Uh, this one is not one of my cross references, but Ephesians one would support the doctrine that we're seeing here. And I think we need to go ahead and have our defense, our theodicy, which is a defense uh, from a theistic, theistic perspective on the problem of evil. But nevertheless, before we go hacking away at the doctrine of God and diminishing the sovereignty of God and diminishing the glorious statements about who Christ is and his lordship over the ages, let's get that all settled and then we'll deal with the problem of evil later. All right? Ephesians 1 and verse um, um, 9 through 11. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of, of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things upon the earth in him, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. Here, also including in the counsel of his will, all the transpires in history. And when we read... Ephesians, Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those who are called. If we, if we have this um, dualistic view of history that some things are being under God's sovereign rulership and these other things have their own independent existence apart from God, well then how do we know that these, these unknown things that may happen that God didn't anticipate or these things that are 
have their uh, being without somehow ultimately answering to God. How do we know they won't thwart what God's doing? And how do we know all things work together for our good if all these other things are out there that God has nothing to do with, that he can't control? Jim. Well, that phrase, uh, the world of the also do use not necessarily to, to, uh, to specifically talk about the expanse of the history and everything, but also the smallest detail. Yes. There's also the other way around. There's also the God of the little thing, too. I agree totally. Uh, R.C. Sproul says if there's one maverick molecule in the universe, how do we know the whole thing will come unravel? <laughs> so he says there's not such a thing as a maverick molecule. Now, now I know my, uh, I have a lot of friends who don't like this, and they, because of their concern of God being implicated in the problem of evil. And so, a theodicy is a way of, um, I would just say, reconciling statements like those that we read today with the fact that evil exists, and that God doesn't morally will evil. God doesn't directly decree that evil be, but he allows it. And so then you have to come up with a defense for the problem of evil. And the atheists are always go to the problem of evil when, they're, when they want to disprove God as the creator. Now, that's another issue, and let's not let us detract from Hebrews. <laughs> because it's in his glory, glorious statement is that he created the ages, and that he's the supreme ruler over the ages, and that we can trust him to take care of us. And that's the good news. I mean, it's better news for us who believers to know that he's in control and that he's going to protect us and bring us to his own glory. So, uh, thank you for this. We all got through one verse, but I told you it was dense. <laughs> Didn't skip anything in the verse that was important, though. Next time we'll start with verse uh, 3 on Hebrews. It'll go faster once we get out of the first four verses, I promise you. Fastest hour of the week. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. <laughs>